I'm very happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Duke Helfand. Duke Helfand has worked as a reporter and editor at the Los Angeles Times for 17 years. During that time, he has covered public education, religion, and Los Angeles city government. In his current assignment with the Times business section, Duke is chronicling the financial side of healthcare, including the effect of the nation's new healthcare law on insurers, hospitals, doctors, and consumers. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Duke Helfand. Thank you. Can, can everyone hear? I appreciate you all inviting us here tonight. This is actually really exciting. We're going to try to tackle something that is really complex in a very short amount of time. So uh, the new health care reform law uh, is enormously complex, enormously difficult to, to comprehend. Um, but if you step back from it, it really do, does two things. It has great potential to open access to care for millions of people by providing them with health insurance, uh, with access to hospitals. But the criticism is that it doesn't do enough to tackle and address the underlying costs of that care. And what I'm hoping tonight in this session is that we can actually address both sides of that equation. And we have four terrific people to help us do that. And let me just uh, introduce them very quickly. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we want to get to the meat of it. To my right is Marion Mulkey. She's the director of the California Healthcare Foundation's Health Reform and Public Projects Initiative. It's a mouthful. She works to support the implementation of national health reform in California, and she's an authority on private health insurance markets, and I can say a trusted source. I call her frequently. Uh, Lucian Wilson, who is down in the end, is the project director of the Insure the Uninsured Project and is working on approaches to expand coverage for uninsured working Californians. John Ahrensmeyer, right here, is the founder and CEO of the Small Business Majority, a nationally recognized small business organization and advocate for comprehensive healthcare reform. And Jan Spensley is the executive director of San Diegans for Healthcare Coverage, a local coalition that represents business and consumers, labor, healthcare providers, health plans, many others, uh, when their mission is to provide meaningful coverage uh, and care for all San Diegans. I was uh, hoping that, Marion, you could lead us off. Um, and very briefly, just give an overview of the major provisions that are contained in this health care law and how particularly they're going to uh, affect access to care uh, here in California. I'd be happy to. Thanks. It's good to be with you all. So my task is in about two minutes to describe about 2,500 pages of legislation and countless pages of regulation that haven't been written yet. Um, and I'm going to do my best, but you need to understand that this is a work in progress, that even though it's a complex and sweeping law, there's a lot that we still don't know because its implementation will unfold over the course of three years before some of the major provisions take effect in 2014, and then even years after that before we really understand the full implications and impact of the law. As Duke indicated, the law is centrally about greatly expanding access to health insurance coverage, and it accomplishes that through a variety of strategies. First, there's a very significant expansion of the Medicaid program, which in our state is Medi-Cal, the program that historically has served uh, poor women and children primarily and the disabled, will now uh, be expanded to cover everybody up to a floor of income, which is a, a big philosophical change from where things have been before. There are also extensive changes to the private health insurance market in terms of the rules that insurers must comply by, they must sell to anyone who uh, is willing to pay, which is different from the current world, and everyone is subject to a new mandate, an obligation to buy health insurance, which of course today is not in effect. To help with that, there are subsidies for people up to um, modest levels of income, and there are new purchasing arrangements that make it easier for people to review their options and compare them. An entity called an exchange or perhaps multiple exchanges. So those are the big coverage provisions that are in the bill. In addition to that, there are a number of provisions that are intended to start us down the path of uh, better incentives to deliver the right kind of care, different payment arrangements that might over time start to bring the cost of health care more in line with the rest of the economy. So those, there are new pilots that will test those new ways to pay for and organize care. There are 
prevention and wellness provisions, um, more coverage for and more different ways to hopefully intervene in people's care before they're sick instead of treating them after they get sick. And there are some provisions that are intended to change the way that um, physicians are trained and other uh, healthcare providers are put into place to serve people. Since, of course, with more people covered, there will be more demand for services than perhaps our current workforce and our current um, care arrangements can provide. So to do all those things, there needs to be a lot of money. And there is also a complex financing package that is encompassed in this, in this new legislation. A lot of the, the money to pay for this broad expansion comes from changes in Medicare financing. Medicare is the program primarily for the elderly in this country. Um, the notion is that, that payments can be brought down and arrangements can be changed to pay less through that program while not materially impacting the amount of care. There are new taxes and fees on uh, drug manufacturing, devices, health insurance sector, um, and changes to the tax code as well. And finally, there are penalties that would be imposed on employers and individuals um, if they don't comply with some of the new obligations that are theirs under the law. Um, further way out, there are even taxes on the most expensive health plans, and we may get back to that later on. But that's my attempt, in a nutshell, to introduce you to the law. That was great. That was a lot of information in a very short period of time. That's why she's a good source. Um, Lucien, the reason we're all sitting here tonight is because of the growth of the uninsured population in this country, and California is driving a lot of that. Can you quantify that for us in California and explain to us why is that population growing and what's the state doing to prepare for this coming law to address that? Uh, California has... Uh as of 2007, about six and a half million uninsured people. That's nearly one out of five of the state's population under age 65 and one of the highest rates uh, in the country. Most of those are working families and individuals, about 85%, and most are U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents, about 80%. Due to the recession, due to job layoffs, and due to the continuing steep rise in private insurance premiums, which are causing more people and more employers to drop coverage, the most recent estimates from 2009-2010 are that we now have over 8 million uninsured Californians, or one in four of every Californian under age 65. So what does it mean to be uninsured? It means if you don't go to a county hospital or community clinic, you're going to be paying out of pocket for the doctor, the hospital, and the prescriptions. And frequently, you're going to be paying at a much higher price, up to three times as much as what an insured person pays for that care. Often, you don't go to a doctor or, or anyone until it's much too late to do anything but to go to the emergency room, resulting in higher rates of death, serious illness, and for some, uh, bankruptcy uh, and medical bankruptcies are, are quite significant. So what's the state doing right now to implement some of the things that are in federal reform? The first and most important for all of you to know is there's something called a high-risk pool that is starting right now and should be operational in September. About uh, over 200,000 of the uninsured couldn't get coverage even if they wanted it because they have a pre-existing medical condition. This will allow them to buy private individual coverage if they can afford those premiums California gets $760 million to try to uh, get that started. It would probably cover maybe 30,000 people. So it's good to get in that line early. There's also going to be some help in terms of young and, uh, children being able to get coverage regardless of their pre-existing condition. That starts this fall. Very importantly, we're now debating uh, passage of the exchanges that Marion talked about earlier. The exchanges are going to be vital for individuals and small businesses. Uh, it's a little bit of a cross between William Shatner uh, kind of negotiating prices and Travelocity displaying what those prices are. Uh, for people who uh, are above Medicaid eligibility levels, uh, you can get uh, refundable tax credits to help you pay for your premiums. 
those run from about 14,000 or so for an individual up to 400% of poverty, which is roughly 88,000 for a family of four. Uh, California is also going to be asking the federal government for a waiver, and we forget, forget I use that word, but it basically allows counties, which now take care as much as they can of the uninsured in the state of California, to kind of double the money that they're currently spending on the uninsured. And this is an effort that hopefully comes to fruition between now and, and, and September. So those are the real key things that we all have to watch over the next couple of months. The exchange, the high-risk pool, and the, we won't use the word waiver, but the ability for counties who care <laughs> for the uninsured to basically get federal matching. The interim in the interim, and that's going to be very important till 2014 when the real reform takes hold. Nice, thanks. John, the government's going to pay for all these reforms, um, partly by cutting funding for Medicare, but it's going to also levy uh, taxes and fees on the insurance industry and on small businesses. I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about the sorts of uh, situations that small businesses will find themselves in and give us a sense of the pulse of how does business in California view these coming reforms? Because they're, they're on the horizon. Well, thanks, Duke. Uh, we're a, a uh, California-based national small business advocacy and research organization, so we've done a lot of, um, we've had a lot of conversations, both formally and informally, with the small business owners across California and, and uh, in many states in the country as well. Healthcare consistently has shown up as the single biggest concern of small businesses. Uh, and not only small businesses who employ people, and that's extremely important, there are uh, almost a million of those in California, six million in the country, but there are 22 million in the country, three million in California of self-employed people who um, are having an even tougher time getting insurance, and it's been a huge impediment to people who want to start businesses because they, now there's no incentive to leave a job where you have um, health insurance to take the risk that you might not be able to get insurance um, in the individual market. Basically, uh, we found that um, you know, the issue is cost. Uh, a few, uh, for uh, businesses of fewer than 10 employees, um, the majority no longer offer insurance to their employees. And the polling we did in California showed that 86% of small businesses that don't offer insurance is because of cost. And 72% of those who do offer insurance uh, uh, are fearful uh, of, of whether they can keep doing that. And these were numbers from a year ago, so the situation's only gotten worse. So, um, you know, the study, we, national study we did last year showed that if you, um, we didn't do anything about this problem, uh, small businesses would pay $2.4 trillion over the next 10 years. Um, and uh, would lose almost a, a billion dollars, uh, almost a billion dollars in lost wages, um, 52 billion in profits, et cetera. So this is a huge crisis for small businesses. It's impeding our economic growth, and it's obviously affecting the lives of people who run and want to run small businesses. So this legislation um, actually takes some steps to deal with that. Uh, first of all, in the short term, there are, starting this year, uh, tax credits for small businesses. And this actually, we, we just released a study that we did along with Families USA looking at, at the impact of, of this uh, in small businesses in all 50 states. And in California, 80% of small businesses are going to benefit from the small business tax credits. And that um, I won't get into the details of it. Basically, small businesses with employees um, um, that aren't, you know, that are below 25 employees and the average wage is below 50,000 are eligible to get some uh, version of this tax credit. It takes effect immediately, and it's, it's in many ways an interim uh, step by Congress saying, look, we know this health care reform bill isn't going to be up and running until 2014, uh, but small businesses need help now, and this is a way to help them. Uh, Lucian referenced the high-risk pools. That's an immediate benefit to um, the self-employed, who, as I indicated, are a huge part of our economy. And um, for those self-employed people who have not been able to get uh, health coverage because of a pre-existing condition, uh, each state is going to have a high-risk pool. California is going to get $760 million over the next uh, five years to infuse that um, high-risk pool. And um, so there's, there's huge opportunities there. Obviously, long-term, you know, there's structural things in this legislation that are going to directly impact small business. Um, a couple of folks have already talked about the 
marketplace that's going to be created where individuals and small businesses can purchase insurance on this open exchange. And right now, small businesses pay 18% more than big businesses on average for insurance. That's going to go away when everybody is buying, um, has, there's economies of scale, everybody's buying on a big marketplace. These exchanges are going to negotiate with insurance providers, and they're really going to, uh, the big businesses are no longer going to have the advantage over small businesses that they have now. Um, so you're going to get a huge um, administrative savings. There's going to be transparency. There's going to be more choice for small businesses. And there are going to be subsidies available to um, employees of small businesses, to some employees, of, many employees of small businesses, as well as the tax credits, which are going to continue for two years after this gets, goes into effect. Those are only going to be available on this exchange. The exchange, the way it's set up, the way it's governed, the way it's communicated to small businesses, uh, the way uh, it, it, that's absolutely critical to making this work. So um, very quickly, what's the reaction out there among small businesses? Well, confusion and uh, a lack of understanding of what's in the bill, no question about it. I mean, it was uh, not a lot of light shown on the majority of factors in this legislation as it was being considered. So once it was passed, um, there's a huge need, obviously in other communities as well, but in the small business community to educate small businesses. And we are going around and talking to as many small business groups as we can. We have a listening tour, a 10-city listening tour we're engaged in throughout the state of California right now, um, co-hosted with uh, regional um, chambers of commerce. And there's a hunger for information. Uh, and, uh, for, by small businesses and by the organizations themselves who serve these businesses, what is in this bill? What does it mean? Um, there is a provision, as Duke mentioned, that um, businesses above a certain size are going to have to um, cover their employees or pay a fee, but that's only businesses over 50 employees, um, and that's only 4% of, uh, of businesses. And of those, um, of those um, businesses over 50 employees, only 4% of those don't offer insurance. So it's, it's a very, I know a lot of uh, big deals have been made out of this, but in fact, it's a very small percentage of, uh, of businesses who are going to be impacted by this. Um, there are a host of other provisions. We can get into some of this in Q&A that um, are going to impact small businesses. But needless to say, it's absolutely critical that small businesses you know, understand what, um, what's in this bill because it's, it's going to be absolutely critical to the implementation of it. Thanks, John. Um, Jan, uh, I think there's been a lot of talk of uh, this health care bill as a, as a federal uh, uh, health care takeover, federal government takeover. When people think of health care legislation, they think of Washington, maybe they think of Sacramento. But the truth is, if you get sick, you don't, you don't go to the White House, you go to your doctor down the street. So um, could you talk a little bit about um, what are people in San Diego doing to make this health care legislation real? and make these provisions real to real people? <clears throat> well, San Diegans for Healthcare Coverage, um, we've been working together since the 90s. And as you mentioned, it's a very broad-based and unique coalition working to improve the health of our community. Um, and that includes business. That includes health. It isn't just the healthcare community or just the business community. And one of our, our primary goals has been to educate people about the consequences of both not having coverage, but also not accessing care, not fault, not non-compliance, all of that, to educate our community, to get input from our community. We've held a lot of community forums, but our most important work now that we've got health reform is to plan collaboratively, to start working together as a community because healthcare is local, and to work together, how are we gonna implement this? What are the gaps? What are the barriers? Uh, what are our solutions? What are some strategies? How do we work together to maximize the benefits of this new health reform law and covering San Diegans and getting them access to care? Coverage is all about care. It's not about insurance companies. It's about people getting to the doctor or getting the health services they need. So how do we, do, how do we work together as a community to maximize um, that? not have people opt out, which is a very real option for people that are low income, for employers who, you know, most of the uninsured are in, employ in uh, work in, in businesses that are under 50. They're not required to provide the coverage. People can opt out without too much difficulty from this. So how do we make it more attractive to them? How do we try and, and get as many people to opt in to healthcare coverage as possible? Uh, we are working on looking at our capacity as a community to care for uh, the newly eligible population. How do we best care for everybody? How do we bring health care to them? How do we bring health information to them? How do we make sure they understand 
what they're eligible for. Um, so there's th this is a very complex bill, but we're trying to synthesize it down as a community and as sectors within that community. I, we are also working to say, what's best for San Diego? How do we, as a local community, organize ourselves around, um, and with our local government, you talked about counties, we are working um, with our local health agency, we've uh, just started and kicked off a strategic steering committee to look at how do we work together as a community um, to do this interim, these interim steps that will in fact impact the ultimate implementation of health reform. I think it's important to note that uh, you know this isn't a perfect bill. This is an incredible first step. And we are looking at every way possible to um, make the most of this first step and make it the most positive for our community and for the health of our community as possible, while at the same time addressing the gaps and barriers. And if that means raising that, and we do have our connections in Sacramento, we do have our connections in Washington, we work with these organizations. Um, and so, you know, making sure that we're feeding up, where are the issues? And, and how do we try to make sure that they're addressed in the next iteration? There's always a next iteration. Thanks, Jan. Can, um, I, can I make one statement? Absolutely. You brought up costs, and I just want Please. to say something. The CBO didn't score what all of us are paying for right now. And I want, to, I want to point that out because I think it's extremely important. We are paying for people being uninsured right now. Mm -hmm. And we are paying not just in dollars and cents, higher premiums and higher taxes. They did score the taxes, by the way. They didn't score your higher premiums. And, but we're paying in people being left in poverty because they've got a sick person who doesn't get care. We are paying we, right now for people uh, with the, who are not productive. We're paying more because they're waiting longer and they're going to emergency rooms to get care that could have been avoided. And the, the numbers are there that demonstrate that we are actually paying an inordinate amount right now, very close to what it's gonna cost us, but it's not the federal government and they don't score it. The CBO score, that you kept hearing the CBO score, everybody, and what it's gonna hit the deficit, that's very different than the private and the community and the economy. You know, that's, that's a different scorecard. It's a huge cost driver, people visiting emergency rooms because they avoid healthcare because they don't have health insurance. Exactly. Uh, it's huge and it's driving up the, uh, the national debt. Um, I'm guessing that there are a lot of people in the room tonight who either have individual policies or who are small business people. And I'm wondering for a moment, um, to make this r real uh, uh, user-friendly, can we return to the exchanges? Um, how, what are they going to look like? How can people in this room, when 2014 rolls around, how are they going to get health insurance? Um, can we just get real basic about this and, and describe um, what that's going to be? Um, any of you want to take that on? Under the law, each state is uh, sort of mandated to set up their own exchange and uh, or exchanges, and there are many options that the states have. I mean, there are certain rules they have to follow, but there are options about whether you combine the individual and or the small group market. There's options to have regional exchanges, and um, there are a lot of the regulations are actually going to end up flowing through the exchanges. There are all sorts of rules about uh, what. The levels of insurance can be offered and, uh, and, and what, depending on what they cover. Um, and, um, but basically, what has, what's going to happen is that you're going to have this marketplace out there and there, there needs to be a mechanism for, for people to be able to access this, for businesses and individuals to be able to go find out uh, what is, is offered on the exchange. But insurance plans are going to negotiate with the exchange, and there is some, uh, California still needs to decide how much negotiating power the exchange is gonna have versus just setting rules and letting all comers come in. Um, and, um, the, but they're going to, they're, they're gonna be able to see you know, a variety of different plans. There's gonna be choice, there's gonna be more transparency than, than there is now. And, uh, but how this works and how the mechanism, uh, you know, how, how user-friendly it is, I don't just mean web-wise user-friendly, but just the way it works, how user-friendly that is. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made. There's governance decisions that have to be made. Actually, California has started down this path probably sooner than any other state. There are already bills um, pending in the, uh, that have passed, actually, the 
uh, Senate and the Assembly, which need to be reconciled when they come back in August. And the governor's indicated he wants to sign some kind of a bill setting sort of basic parameters for the exchange. But a lot of work has to be done. Regulations have to be written. So it's really important for everybody, small businesses, individuals, everyone, to, um, to weigh in on this, because this is going to be a process over the next four years um, as this gets set up. Everything that he just said is absolutely true. I don't have anything to add to the basic construct, but I'd like to point out something. San Diego County, my county, my little county, which is tiny compared to your county, that is as big as the state of Connecticut. And so when you look at, when you look at this whole idea of every state will have an exchange, it frightens me. It frightens us as a community because we've seen you know, this sort of state top down without getting into a local community. And I think, um, so part of our advocacy effort will be in fact to be talking about how there will be some regional input. Obviously there are statewide rules. Those are gonna be, we, we want standardization. We want that in terms of the statewide rules. But we want local uh, or regional implementation. And that's the navigator role, by the way. That's. There's a role in here about how you navigate this system. I love that they came up with that. And because it, we're too big. California is as big as many countries. And so we have to keep that in mind that we're not all equal as states. When the federal government designed this, we need to think about how every state is different and California is really as big as many countries. So we need to be looking at regions. LA is pretty doggone big, its own country as well. Did you want to say something, Lucien? So I, I think of this as uh, kind of something that every individual and every small employer can go into. And it'll look a little bit like Travelocity or the other ways you buy your airplane tickets. Mm -hmm. And it a little bit, as I said before, uh, like Priceline, where somebody's ne negotiated the best deal they can on prices. You then pick your plan, and there'll be a variety of plans offered. You pick your level of benefits, and there'll be four or five different levels of risk and exposure you have. So how much you want in co-pays, deductibles, and all those things. You decide that. And then you also pick your doctor within the health plan. And this all happens, hopefully, in a very, very simple web-based way. Now, when I say hopefully, <laughs> there is not an operating exchange in this country outside of Massachusetts, which has something called the connector, which has actually worked really very well. But the opportunities to mess this up are legion. And so this is, this, this is a, this is, the and best the, part of the bill and the most challenging part, to my thinking. And the experience in the past is? I, I think one thing that's really important to understand is that this law is going to empower individual consumers. Um, insurance companies won't be able to cancel you because you got sick. There will no longer be any um, annual limits on the amount that they'll, they'll pay for your health care. There won't be lifetime limits on the amount they'll pay for your health care. So if you get sick, you can, you'll be taken care of. But now comes the flip side, the challenges. And um, one of those challenges is just having enough doctors to treat all these new people. Because under this law, they're going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 million new people who are getting health insurance, thus health care. They're going to doctors, they're going to hospitals. Um, could we talk a little bit about the challenges and the fact that, I mean, this is well known for all of us who write about and think about this, there aren't enough primary care doctors. It's a huge shortage. But could we talk about that and other challenges that, that uh, we face? Marion, you want to... Sure, I'll, I'll start. Uh, absolutely right that in some areas of this state today, um, certainly in some uh, inner urban areas and many rural areas, we already face um, shortages for people who have insurance in accessing many specialists and some primary care providers. And when you give people coverage, they, they will seek more care. Indeed, that's the point, right, is better access to care. So you have this question of how do you align the way that we we organize healthcare the way that we provide care with the needs of people in getting it. And there's not a simple answer to that, and there's certainly not a short-term answer, because when you think about the pipeline for doctors and nurses, it takes time. It doesn't turn on a dime. But, but one of the things that is 
I think, going to be critical to consider is whether there are ways to provide care that are a little bit different from the ways that we are used to. And there's great promise in, um, in some of the work that's already underway. Um, even before the health reform law passed, the stimulus package included a lot of money um, to doctors to put into place new data systems to help organize care. New electronic um, medical records, while that's not an end in itself, it can help keep track of people and reach out to people, engage them in self-care in ways that may not require a doctor's office visit every time that today people get doctor's office visits. There are technological solutions like telemedicine that might serve some specialist needs for people in outlying areas. And for this to work well, for us to begin to think about those cost issues and really realize the promise of access, there's going to be, need to be a lot of creative thinking from every quarter and every community of the healthcare system um, to take advantage of all the promise that's in this bill. I'm, yeah, I, I think that um, Marion really <clears throat> nailed it. We're going to have to be thinking outside the box. We have to think about all of the activities that are already going on in terms of health information technology. Um, we're looking at wireless medicine. We're looking at, 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 at lots, when, you, when I say wireless medicine, don't get alarmed. That doesn't, it, it means that automatic information is going back and forth between patients and doctors. We need to start thinking about how we use our health professionals today. May not be the way that we use them tomorrow. And maybe there are more efficient ways. And, I, and I'll, I'll use the example of um, diabetic nurse specialists are absolutely incredible. They're, they're wonderful. Most doctors don't, can't afford to use them because they don't get paid for them. Maybe we need to have them use them. Then we don't need the doctor's visit. So there are ways to, there are ways to reorganize how we deliver the care um, along with waiting for that pipeline. And the National Health Service Corps has, in fact, added, um, as Marianne mentioned, I think it'll add 15,000, I believe is the number I've read, um, 15,000 primary care physicians for medically underserved and in, in, uh, low-income populations and areas, I should say. But, but that's a pipeline. And we have to also keep in mind that we have to encourage people to take up primary care because people are not selecting primary care as a specialty in medical school right now. And there's a reason for that. They don't get paid. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be looking at, there are some, there are some provisions that sunset, but there are some provisions in, in health reform to try and take care of that. But we have a bigger problem that's been in existence for, for some time with the inequity of primary care payment. And until we fix that, it's gonna be hard to keep people in primary care. So I think that's also another part of it with medical education. And uh, did you want to add something, Lucien? Well, just to give people s some context, at least as I understand, what people say they w we need is about one primary care doctor to about one specialist. So it's about 50-50. And what we have right now is somewhere around one primary care to two specialists. So, uh, and the further problem is that of people coming out of medical school, uh, apparently only about 2% are saying they're going into primary care. Mm -hmm. And so this is why increasing the reimbursement for primary care physicians is so important uh, to just uh, provide a greater ability for everybody in the country to have access to, to a primary care physician. Uh, this law is gonna require, as I mentioned earlier, um, health insurers to um, step up and spend a lot more money on care. Um, they're gonna have to spend 80% net right now in California you have to spend 70% of your premiums on medical claims. That's gonna to rise to 80% of in the individual market and 85% in what they call the small group market, which is businesses under 50. Um, so they're gonna be spending more, there are gonna be new taxes on insurers. I'm curious for your thoughts on whether you think all that is gonna ultimately drive premiums up or drive premiums down. And there's a lot of debate about that. Um, what do you think? Um, anyone can take that one on. I'll be the guinea pig on this one. I think there are some things in, in the bill that drive uh, costs up, such as getting preventive, all your preventive care with no co-pays. And there's other things that'll drive it up, like getting rid of the annual caps and the lifetime caps. And there are other things that will drive it down. The exchange, I think, is, is, is a feature which will drive it down. 
the mandate which brings in everybody into the system will also have the effects of driving. So there'll be ups and downs. I think the uh, CBO scores on it said that on average for the large employers, you know, it's a little bit of maybe a slight decrease. Uh, small businesses, maybe slight increase to slight decrease. For individuals who are going to be able to get the refundable tax credit, a big decrease in their what they pay. But for the overall individual market, you'll have a lot more services covered than are currently covered. And so that, that'll be a, a factor causing an increase in premiums. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with what with Lucian's analysis. Uh, basically, uh, I, I would add that last fact is an important one. That the the good news is people in general will have more comprehensive coverage. You won't find these very thin policies that you can currently buy in the individual market. But the bad news is that that costs more money, and so that will be that will be a factor in premiums. And I, you know, my own um, prognosis for the next two or three years, um, even as some of these rules that Duke talked about kicked in, is that um, health insurance premiums, which have been going up faster than the rest of the economy for as long as any of us on this uh, podium can remember, are going to keep going up faster than the rest of the economy, which of course is not in growing at all really right now. But I think there's every reason to think that that trend will continue. And in fact, that health insurers, because they're reacting to some of these short-term changes and because they are risk-averse businesses who, are, who don't really know quite what the future is going to look like, premiums are going to be going up. And so there, you know, there's the opportunity for things to get worse before they get better, um, which speaks again to these issues about messaging and communication and thinking about what, what is ahead in a big picture sense and over the long haul, not necessarily focusing on only one's own situation. I think there are various things that everyone said so far that are going to cause it to go up and down. I do think that the exchange to get to to reiterate what Lucian said, is going to ultimately drive the administrative costs down, which is causing a lot. The requirement uh, that uh, more dollars, of higher percentage of dollars be paid for actual care is going to ultimately drive costs down. I think the reality is, though, that costs are not going to come down, or the growth of costs, because I don't know if the costs are going to go down, but the growth of costs are not really going to come down in a big way until significant delivery, what's called delivery reform, cost containment mechanisms, and, and we touched on a few of those already uh, in the system, are, are going to happen. There is some, um, there's some starting points in this bill, particularly through the Medicare program, to do that. Um, all of us, all of us up here would have wanted to have more in the bill, but getting, you know, negotiating cost containment means you're negotiating, there's always some interest group that's got their particular interest that's being, it's being affected by that. However, if you look at Massachusetts, which has been much criticized because they didn't deal with cost containment up front, I actually believe you can't really deal with cost containment in a big way until everybody is in the system, everybody's feeling it. You don't have these dislocations or some people are using the system but not paying for it. You actually are saying, hey, you're all in the system, you're all gonna have to pay for it and you're gonna pay, everyone's gonna pay, you know, those who are paying a lot now are gonna pay a little less, maybe some who are paying less are gonna pay a little more. At that point, everybody's kind of in the same boat and you're going, oh my God, we have to deal with this. And this is what Massachusetts is now addressing. So I don't know that it was a mistake in Massachusetts. I think it was a political reality. I actually think we probably got as much as we could in the federal bill in terms of cost containment, given the political realities. I do think that over time, once everybody's in the system and we look around and we say, oh my gosh, um, I, I think that's going to put pressure. But I think we're probably talking, you know, five, ten years before we really begin to see a significant change. Um, but the administrative uh, savings and the exchange and other things, that can happen much more quickly. Um, all of this is happening while California has this terrible budget crisis. And the governor wants to cut uh, funding for health insurance for poor families. So does, what's happening in California and does that undercut what the federal government is trying to do? Anyone want to take that one on? Sure. Uh, overall, most of the funding that's coming is all federal funding, and it's frequently 100% federal funding, so it doesn't cost the state to add the coverage because the federal government's going to pay for it, but, you know, still somebody's paying for it. Calif some of California programs, which are taking care of this population right now, will be duplicative with what the federal government will do, so we should see some savings out of that. On the other hand, 
some more people who are not now insured who are eligible for coverage are going to come in. So those, that's going to be some additional costs. Overall, if California did nothing to improve its system, I think we'd get a saving of close to $1.8 to $2 billion. But I think we've got to actually use some of that money uh, to do the things that Marion is talking about, which is pay doctors who participate in the Medicaid program more. And that's what was the, uh, part of the governor's analysis when he took a look at this back in December. And that, that costs money, and that's a, that's a worthwhile reinvestment, but that's something the legislature and a future governor will have to decide. I'm going to, I'll add to that. I didn't understand all of it. So, <laughs> I, but, I, but, I, but I do look at it this way. The fact is that the state of our budget, yes, it is going to impact things. And I, I don't, how, could, how could the California budget not? And, and, but there's a lot of horse trading going on between the state and the federal government. The waiver that we're not talking about, the waiver, I don't know why, but, but the fact is that in the interim, What's happening is the state of California is attempting to push some of that expansion and responsibility down onto counties, and then the count and then the counties spend the money and get the federal the money from the feds. I mean, it's basically coming through the state to the feds. That's one way the state's dealing with their 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 budget crisis. Um, but the reality is this: we have we have on the table. They're still talking about it. I believe they're. They're having their little discussions, even as we speak, uh, making major cuts in the interim to healthcare programs. And that's programs for children and programs for, uh, for pregnant women, eliminating some programs. So those, those are realities that are on the table right now in the state of California. It's because we do have a budget crisis. So as we talk about cuts, um, could we talk about what are the cuts in this federal law to Medicare? Because there are, there, there are cuts to the way they reimburse doctors, um, and how is that going to affect people who are on Medicare? Anyone want to take that one? I'll take that. I'm happy to do that one. That's an, to me, that was an easier one. The biggest um, savings under Medicare that they've got in there that, they call, that, that they're calling a cut is the Medicare Advantage plans. Medicare Advantage is Medicare HMOs. And what that means is that at back in the several years back, a deal was cut. Those health plans did not have to compete competitively. They just got automatic increases. Unlike the Medicare program, unlike the providers in the Medicare program. And as a result, um, the Medicare program costs, and the Medicare program costs per person went up significantly over that period of time because they were taking care of what they felt were the sicker population, the Medi-Medi, excuse me, that's the Medi-Cal and uh, Medicare population. So bottom line is, big portion of that cut, that cut is to um, have those folks competitively bid, bid now for those HMO plans. That's, is that, that's essentially, yeah, that's, that's a huge piece of it. Absolutely. Uh, but to be clear, California has a greater share of Medicare enrollees in those managed care plans. And with that extra money, um, they are getting more generous benefits or paying less in premiums now than they will once those, those cuts kick in. So people will feel um, some pain through that. Agreed. I, I think there will be an impact, an impact um, from that. The other cuts to physicians, I, I just want to point out something. Physician cuts have been on the table every year for quite a few years. And somehow, magically, as it's been all over the front page, they don't take place. So I don't know quite what's going to happen. I do hope they reorganize and redistribute um, how they do physician payment for the purposes of looking at primary versus specialty care and the true value of, of, of care and services. Hmm. Well, I think I want to stress that this, I mean, a lot of this shifting, uh, it's going to drive some of the innovation, just as I said um, exactly. before the cost containment ultimately is going to get driven by everyone in the system. I think what Congress attempted to do is start to realign some of the priorities, and, but it's ultimately it is going to be up to um, the, the, the states and it's going to be up to, 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 to health care um, plans and, 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 and health care groups of providers to start 
making some of these changes because that's what they're going to have to do to survive. The technology is there to do it. There's some great pilot um, um, cases of that happening, many in California right now. So I think a lot of this is going to drive what happens on the ground. Uh, and um, I think, that, but I, I think, um, uh, as Marianne said, it's, um, it's going to be a little ugly for the next couple of years. And that's part of the problem in sort of people having confidence in this bill because there was no way they could pass something that was then going to just magically fix everything immediately. A lot of this is kind of figuring out how to get things lined up so that things work a little better down the road. We're winding down on time on this portion of, of this program, but there's one last thing I wanted to ask about. Um, hospital costs. Um, no one really knows what things cost. You know, the hospital charge is one thing, the insurance says it's another. Depending on what type of insurance you have, you'll pay one cost. Um, what's being done, either in this law or what's being done uh, innovatively, to try to get a handle on what things cost and therefore to bring those costs down? Can anyone talk about that? I'm happy to, but... Once again, first of all, getting a handle on hospital costs is sort of a silly thing because you've got charges and you've got costs and you've got contract rates mm -hmm. and, and, and those are all separate things and they're not really the point. What you pay for is that's what it costs. Right. Okay? And if you pay less than what it costs the hospital, they're going to shift that cost to somebody else. That's, a point, that's, that's relevant, right? Medicaid, the Medi-Cal program, doesn't pay what it costs. They shift that cost to the private insurers. Mm -hmm. That's a reality. So let's, let's just say that those are, you know, what you pay for is what it costs on the general market. What are people doing to get at hospital costs on a broader sense? I think the hospitals themselves are doing a great deal to, um, and, and they're incentivized because they usually need to be goaded, but they're incentivized by some pretty nasty penalties in this bill for not, for safety, um, for not doing electronic health records, for, I mean, they're, they've got carrots and sticks in this bill, I think. You, you want to say I, I something? I say yes about outcomes, but not necessarily about, uh, about managing costs directly. And I think that um, the reality is that cost, hospitals have been organized in a way that, that they have solved to reimbursements. They have thought about what they needed to be whole. And because they're often mission-driven organizations, um, we generally are supportive of that. But having price signals, the kinds of things that drive all businesses to get better and better and do things, do things well for less, those have not been, uh, been visible uh, for many reasons, including the cost shift. And I think through some of these pilots, there will be opportunities to do better on that, but it, they will probably happen in very selective, limited locations to start with. So I think it's, it's a fair question to ask, can that happen in a more global way? And where it has happened that I'm aware of has been with state-driven initiatives in some of the smaller states, including the Northeast and Minnesota, some states where states have gotten all, you know, are small enough that they have gotten their payers and hospitals together to really systematically try to address those issues. I asked that question because I've, I've written about this and it is so hard to get good information from hospitals on what they charge. And uh, I, I, one guy I interviewed, I'll just tell you this, now I know we can move on to the next uh, uh, part of this. Uh, I interviewed one man uh, for a story that I did a few months ago. He had uh, knee surgeries, both knees, done at two different hospitals. This knee was 97,000, this knee was 55,000. <laughs> Same, same, sur same surgeon, same surgeon, same procedure, different costs. Uh, just amazing. H hospitals within about 40 miles of each other. And he's the lead of the story, of course. But, you know, it, it makes no sense. And that's why I asked the question. I know that we have to move on to the next part of this, so I'll let you take it from there. Hello. Hi, my name is Elisa. My question is for Lucian. And, uh, of course, you raised our hopes, but it wasn't clear. I wanted to clarify. You said that uh, the medical would include uh, everyone, not just women with minor children, and uh, starting immediately. And also you said there would be tax uh, incentives starting immediately, maybe I misunderstood, for uh, people at 400% above poverty level, which is 88,000 for a family of four. Can you clarify that, if that is correct? Uh, so, sorry if I confused a little bit. The, uh, the thing that will take it in effect immediately that's important for, for kids is is the ability to access coverage uh, starting in September without regard to pre-existing medical conditions. And that's, that, that's very important. The other thing that's important for young adults 
is the ability uh, of parents and who want to cover their young adults through their coverage to be able to do so. And some plans are starting that now, and that'll be a, a rolling out process. The, the subsidies that I talked about, the refundable tax credits that are really going to help people, don't kick in until 2014. And, uh, but some of the tax credits that, that, that we talked about that are for small employers, uh, that'll help small employers who are small and low-wage businesses to be able to keep their coverage or begin to offer coverage, those start this year. So different... And the Medi-Cal expansion also 2014. So same rules as ever about who's eligible for Medi-Cal until 2014. Except that we're asking for federal matching money to help the counties who are taking care of that uninsured population. So yes. we hope... We're not there yet. We hope, if that is approved... In that a county like San Diego will be able to do more for the uninsured in its population. Up to 200%. <laughs> yeah, so these are, the, this is a negotiation between the state and the federal government with the counties holding the, holding the money that would make it work. What does the new legislation say about the feasibility, the ability for a state to establish its own single-payer system? The, uh, the legislation is silent on that, and um, it, it, you would need to make sweeping changes um, to allow that to happen because fundamentally the current financing that we have for healthcare is such a patchwork now, and the relationships between uh, existing employment contracts. Um, the public programs, the, including Medicare at the national level, but importantly, Medicaid at the state level, which differs state by state, many, many, many of the rules and financial flows that apply now would have to be changed in order to put everything into a, a single pool, which is the concept of a single payer. Um, clearly, there have been advocates in this state and at the national level for that approach for many years, but it has not gained political traction. So Marion is completely right on the complexity of the transaction. I think there's a provision in there that says effective 2017, states can, states can states negotiate can with the federal government to do anything from a single payer to uh, something entirely different yes. as long as they get results that are as good or better than the, than the, the existing program. And that's, that's a difficult... Uh, transaction, as Marion has said, for a state to do, but it, it is out there as a part Good of the point. bill. Good point. With the onus being placed on states now, are there any specific skill sets that the candidates for governor bring to the table that I should be aware of? And should I be more concerned about the <laughs> ballot when it comes to state insurance commissioner as well? Fantastic question. <laughs> uh, and why was, are you looking down here, Miriam? I like to wish she looks down here. I avoided the political question yeah. to save you guys, so go uh, ahead. I want to hear you answer it. <laughs> I, I think both candidates, I think it's fair to say, my co-speakers co, uh, here will correct me if they have a different view. Both candidates have been pretty quiet on um, any of the specifics around health reform so far. And, um, you know, the... There's been there's been some talk about overturning it, and you know, obviously, if that's something that would be a concern to you, that you should factor in. If that's something you would advocate, then you should factor that in um, to your to your thinking about it. Um, no. But I think that getting getting really concrete about what this would mean financially, when you talk about you know the medic medical program is about twenty percent of our state budget right now, so. Uh, and it is a big driver, of course, of the increases in our state budget. So to me, I guess the advice I'd give you is don't think about the health reform distinct from the issues of budgets and existing programs in terms of the candidate positions. Um, and on the insurance, uh, the insurance commissioner candidates, the only point I would make there is to be sure that people understand that in this state we actually have two insurance regulators. The Department of Managed Health Care, which is not an elected position, actually oversees a greater share of the health insurance market um, and regulates a greater share of it than the insurance commissioner, although the commissioner does play an important role as well. So the commissioner is elected, 
the person, the director of the Department of Managed Healthcare is appointed by the governor. That's correct. Works for the governor. So um, the, the insurance commissioner is independent, doesn't answer correct. to the governor. It's a, it's a strange system they have in California. And I, and I think that that's going to raise <laughs> even more questions as we move to a yeah. more robust federal role in regulating insurance. Historically, the business of insurance has been regulated primarily at the state level, um, but there's now a greater role for the federal level that somebody will need to coordinate with. We've given ourselves an extra challenge in having two somebodies have to coordinate with that. Hello, I'm Paula Tavro. Um, I wanted to make a comment and then ask a question. The comment is... Um, a number of studies are indicating that physician assistants and nurse practitioners may be able to offer primary health care services very effectively. And I just wonder why it seems that the panel is pushing for to incentivize doctors to go into primary care when they're clearly not interested in doing that and we might have better options that might be more cost effective. Uh, that's a comment. Uh, the, the questions I have is that nobody has commented on the effects of healthcare reform on the undocumented in California or the effects on birth control and abortion. And so I was hoping that you could address those issues. Thank you. I personally believe that we are doing everything in our community to look at expanding our, our, our physician extenders, uh, physician extender programs and slots for those programs. And I, you know that a lot of places have been cut. Education is one of them. Even though we got them expanded, they got contracted this last year. So we are working very hard to get our nurse practitioner and physician, and physician assistant physicians more slots, more ability, and more training. Um, I don't think these, I, I think that Mary said earlier, there are many different paths that we have to follow. And um, some of them are thinking outside the box. Some of them are new physicians. Some of them are additional extenders. So it, it, I don't think it, it was meant to exclude them Yeah, by anybody here. Um, absolutely right. Undocumented, not, not changed. Status not changed. Not any new um, coverage, formal coverage, um, not subsidies available, in fact, not even access to whatever benefits the exchange provides to undocumented people. And that fact means that people who do participate in the exchange um, may have to demonstrate their documentation status in order to do so. And that's one of the many details um, that will be very important to work out. Um, because when you think about everybody up to a family income of $88,000, uh, having to go through a process to demonstrate that they qualify for these new benefits, that could be relatively simple and straightforward, or that could be very onerous if you think about what, um, what we have in place now in, in some programs. Um, and that could make a big difference uh, in terms of who actually accesses the benefits of this. But regardless of that, there are not new provisions. There will be a sizable population in California left out of this new, um, this new set of benefits. I think we should add that there will be some relief to the community clinics and the hospitals that do provide uh, care to uh, the uninsured patients, and they will have uh, you know, as many as 80% of currently uninsured, if we do it everything right, picked up in California. And that, that'll, that'll be helpful to, to somebody uh, who's out there providing the care right now? But but, but, but nothing nothing allows coverage for the undocumented. Yes, <laughs> but it'll be unevenly distributed. Yeah, um, that's true. It, there's a lot. Of, there is a lot of financial assistance for community clinics to um, uh, which are providers of care to low-income people to expand their services, and they I think will come out of this um, better perhaps than some of the public hospitals, um, especially in. Uh, locations like Los Angeles and San Diego, who may end up with a sizable population and reduced resources, um, which could make it even harder to care for that population. They're, they're reducing that funding. And I think, I think for, for, for the uninsured over time, that funding is declining because they're assuming people are insured. I, I want to point out that, that we, we talked about undocs, undocumented persons, but one of the other provisions here is legal residents who have, been, who have not been here um, five years or more. And that's really rather disturbing as well because that really truly increases that pool. Those people, many of them are insured today through employers. If you go look at the data, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's a sort of a surprising number that are, that are employed and they're insured through, you know, through employer-sponsored coverage, but that now are precluded from going through the exchange 
for they that can, coverage. They can go through the exchange, but they have to pay. They can go through the exchange, but they have to pay full. Um, no, they, they can't get, get the subsidies. They can't, they can't get, get the subsidies, subsidies right. through the exchange. They they cannot. Yeah, they can. Yeah, they if, if they're under five years? Well, we're, we're all experts in this and we disagree with each other. <laughs> Hold on. If they're, legal, if they're legal residents under five years? Yes. In the exchange, yes. yes. Yeah. No Medi-Cal expansion. Yeah. Okay. Under five years? Okay, miss, I missed something. I missed something. I'm sorry. But. <laughs> sure. I'm sorry. Why don't well, go ahead and repeat it? Because I think I got it wrong. Did I not okay. get it wrong? In, in the exchange, legal permanent residents can get help with the costs of paying for their coverage. In Medi-Cal, they they cannot get anything more than restricted emergency only benefits. So, in the exchange, they can get the same treatment as, as anyone else. Uh, from what I can see, you know, we already have budget problems and it looks like almost everything we're planning to do is going to increase the costs right i mean even running an exchange is a new administrative cost right uh, adding doctors is another big cost the way that you get more doctors is you start paying them more money and then more people want to be general practitioners if you want uh then we're going to have more patients that's going to cost more money um and and also this whole idea of preventative medicine right even the ama studies say that preventative medicine actually costs more money Overall, it saves money on the one individual who doesn't get sick, but the cost of testing everybody totally outweighs the costs of saving the one person from getting the one disease. So, I, you know, what do, you, do you, have any, you have any suggestions on how any of this is going gonna, is gonna to cause us in the long run to save money on health care? It seems like it's all just going to add to current costs. Features that we haven't talked about that's in the bill that uh, people are hopeful will produce some savings is something called the uh, accountable care organizations. And the accountable care organizations are basically, uh, let's assume you have somebody who has diabetes and you, and you are successful in reducing the risk uh, that that person has a bad diabetic episode. And you do that through a team of doctors and promotoras and hospitals all working together uh, you reduce hospital costs, you reduce medical costs, and people think that building that teamwork and paying for those better results does have some real benefits. And so that's one of the things that a lot of people are paying attention to as one of the most promising features, uh, I think, in the bill. But, but this is being done on such a small scale. There are the pilot programs that are in this uh, law. There's another one like this called bundled payments where they try to figure out what's the cost of a knee replacement or having um, heart surgery from the time you enter until 90 days after you leave the hospital. And we're going to give you one lump sum uh, that goes for the doctor, the hospital, the specialist, the device, everything. But just, I, I wrote a story about this at Cedars, uh, Hogue down in Newport Beach, UCLA. Um, big hospitals are part of this, but just to get this one pilot project off, off, the, uh, off the ground is taking years. And, it, and funding from foundations. And fun, yeah, <laughs> and, so, and that's just one procedure. Um, so it, it's complex and it's difficult and it, it requires insurance companies, large hospitals, medical groups of doctors to cooperate. And these are generally groups that are like at each other's throats because they're fighting over what? Money. Everyone wants their piece of the pie. But this is, this is kind of what the challenge is for California because we do have a lot more managed care in, in this state than many others and we do have some pretty good, good and big physician groups who have the capacity to do this. And I'm, I'm not saying that ACOs can be put on the ground tomorrow, but I'm saying that I think people think that that's one of the many promising features that we should spend some time on and see if we can make it work because it's not, I mean, I just picked diabetes, but it's aimed at many of the chronic conditions and trying to do that. And chronic conditions make up uh, a very, very large percent of our spending. I think, what is it, 80% Marion of our healthcare spending? Is, yeah, depending yeah. on how you, how you so, cut it. I, I, oh, yeah. I was, I was just going to generally concur with what you said about many cost drivers. I do want to make the point that in the short term, there are financial sources to balance that out. But in the long term, you've heard from all of us the need to more fundamentally address how healthcare is delivered and how it's paid for. The pilots are a start, but that's, that's where 
the solution ultimately will have to come, you know, to pay in different ways, to get services in different ways, and maybe even to put incentives back in place for consumers. And this is not something that got a lot of, of talk about consumers thinking about, you know, what's, what they should pay and what's worth it to them to obtain and what's not. And there's not a lot of that in this bill yet either. I just want to, on, on, the, on the cost issue, just a big picture, I just want to remind everybody that the uh, Congressional Budget Office, which is a bipartisan entity, did, as, did um, project that with this bill that there would be a small decrease in the deficit in the first 10 years and a very significant decrease in the second 10 years. So you, what you're seeing is a lot of offsets. You're absolutely correct that a lot of this extra money this, for subsidies, et cetera, is going to come from the federal government, but it's going to be offset from the savings in the Medicare Advantage program, reduced uh, pharmaceutical costs, and some of the pressure that's being put on the Medicare program to uh, set up some of these, uh, these more cost-efficient ways of doing business. And you know, whether they're right or wrong, there was an independent bipartisan entity that did project that there was going to be actually a cost savings over 10 years total. So there's a lot of you know, extra money here, less money here, and um, you know, it, it's, it's going to balance off over the long run. Uh, I think it's reasonable to assume that there's going to be a flood of applicants to the high-risk pool, uh, which is going to supposedly start in September. Uh, how does one apply? How does one get on the list? And, and is it reasonable to expect that somebody who does apply will be able to participate in that high-risk pool? A website for the Managed Risk Medical Insurance Board, mrmib.gov, um, a place where you can sign up. Um, and, uh, and it's, but it's important to know that we don't know yet exactly what the benefits will look like or exactly what the premium will be, and the premium will be significant because, of course, even with uh, federal assistance, um, the it, it, health insurance costs money. So this is to bring it to market rates. It's not to eliminate the premium altogether. MrMib.ca.gov, I think. Is that right? You got it right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. That yeah. time. That was perfect. MrMib.ca.gov. Hi, my name is Elena Ong. I'm an advisor to the uh, American Medical Women's Association and the Asian Pacific American Medical Students Association. And I'm happy because 50% of medical students today are women and 25% are Asian. So I'm actually tapping into this future workforce. So what we're doing right now uh, is actually doing a YouTube to educate people about the provisions of the... Affordable Care Act. I don't call it health reform anymore. Uh, and uh, actually, we're doing it in language. And I would like to ask this panel uh, and actually uh, this organization, uh, given, our, given the fact that California is majority-minority, uh, what can we do to actually proliferate town halls in language? I can say we're doing <laughs> We agree with you, actually, but we're not sure what to do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that. We actually do go out to different communities. Um, I will not say that we do it in language, uh, but we go, but the folks there um, share, that, share it in language. And, and so we do go out to the different communities, including our Asian business, com you know, business community in San Diego. They're very active with us. So, and, and we have a lot of different enclaves. So we, we do go out to them. In language, is a lot more, it is a lot more challenging. And so it means almost creating experts within each community, um, or a number of experts within each community. And that's what we've been striving to do, is bring them in to have them go back out. I would um, say I'm the only funder on the panel, so the question may have been addressed to me. Um, uh, there are probably other funders in the state, the California Wellness Foundation and the California Endowment, that work a little bit more on the ground in communities and might be sources. But one way that we think about this challenge um, at the California Healthcare Foundation, where I work, is through the media. And at times we have partnerships with um, media organizations, with, for example, La Opinion, a Spanish language news newspaper where we can where you might fund supplements to describe um, uh, um, some of the new provisions or programs so there are um, I would suggest community partnerships and partnerships with organizations already communicating with um, that population as a starting point I just what I said. <laughs>